All right, everybody, welcome back to the Davis Fitness Method Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Davis, and with me today we have Jacob. Jacob is an exceptional human being, um, a man of many words and uh, lots of lots of things in the brain. Uh, Jacob, if you uh, wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our audience and for anybody who doesn't know you, kind of like what you do and, and what some of your background is. Sure thing. Uh, my name is Jacob Sipkin. I'm a professional trainer and remote coach. I've been in the fitness industry for a little over 15 years now. Uh, I kind of got my start in CrossFit, spent a lot of years coaching competitive athletes uh, up to and including the uh, open division at the CrossFit Games. Uh, I've worked a little bit with powerlifters, a lot with weightlifters, uh, have uh, been fortunate enough to coach uh, some athletes to a pretty high level of competition there. Uh, and nowadays I work more and more with kind of gen pop folks and I try to uh, integrate my understanding of fitness from resistance training and bioenergetics uh, to design programs that are, you know, well fitted to people's individual capacities and and desires, and uh, and uh, try to try to integrate a little bit of everything uh, into stuff that people really love to do and they can keep doing for a long time. Uh, I'm also a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt under Drew Vogel of Framework Jiu-Jitsu, and I'm the co-owner of Framework Jiu-Jitsu Seattle, right here in beautiful Seattle, Washington. That is a heck of a resume um when you're when you're dealing with you know general uh pop uh, clients when they come to you do they come to you with any specific ambitions or uh do they kind of just like find themselves like i want to be active i'm not really sure what to do help me out a lot of people come to me and i would say one of the most frequent inquiries i get is something like uh I want to get my form checked on the big three on squat, bench, and deadlift. And these are not competitive powerlifters. They're people who, uh, just because of the way sort of like the fitness ecosystem is, the, the resistance training ecosystem in particular, that's what they think about when they think about resistance training. And I use that term resistance training advisedly. I uh, deliberately try to use that term instead of strength training these days. And usually the way that that goes for me is I get some sessions with them on the squat bench and deadlift, and then I start immediately trying to talk them out of, uh, like, putting those lifts on a pedestal and uh, instead focusing on kind of what they want out of resistance training. And uh, hopefully, if we uh, we end up working together in a remote coaching capacity, which is the bulk of my work, personal training is a really pretty small part of it, um, I'm able to kind of craft a resistance training program that suits their actual needs, which sometimes includes those big three lifts to some extent, uh, but certainly doesn't have to. Um Around here, a lot of people have this kind of uh, mixed interest and they want to get bigger and stronger and they also want to do outdoor stuff. Very, very common thing I get is like, okay, I want to put on muscle mass or I want to improve my deadlift, but also every summer I spend every weekend hiking and I want to be in good shape for that. Uh, so uh, I think that my background as a, as a CrossFit coach comes in handy there because obviously training CrossFit athletes is all about balancing these somewhat competing interests, your ability to kind of do a lot of what, what we would conventionally call aerobic work, uh, while at the same time being, you know, strong and powerful and fast. Yeah. So, um, I know in certain areas of fitness or the fitness industry, some people believe that you can't necessarily like develop two things at the same time. So how does that fit into a sport like CrossFit where people are, you know, grossly conditioned and, they're really strong. Um, and granted, there are some people that are a bit more specialists in certain areas. Um, but where do you feel um, 
the training or how do you feel the training needs to be adjusted to make these athletes who aren't supposed to be able to do all these things able to do all of these things? I think the first thing is to understand that there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And all of this is a game of trade-offs. CrossFit in particular is a great game of trade-offs. I mean, training for almost any sport is, right? Even powerlifting. If you really want to prioritize your squat, your training for your deadlift is probably going to have to be compromised to some extent. It's hard to really prioritize those two equally, uh, especially once you're already pretty strong. Uh, in CrossFit, it's just an eternal game of trade-offs. So I guess there's sort of a general answer and there's an uh, individual answer. The general answer is that you do your best to come up with an understanding of training volume that can accommodate different modes of training, which is very hard. I think the what I think of as the volume problem in CrossFit is one of the most challenging problems because with powerlifting training, for example, volume is fairly easy. You can understand it in terms of tonnage, or you can even understand it in terms of hard working sets. That's probably more applicable to hypertrophy training, but because all of the training is kind of the same mode, it's it's fairly easy to break it down. With CrossFit, you have this difficult problem of how do I account for the volume and the total effect of my athletes running training, their squatting, and their workouts that have squatting and running put together. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first thing you have to do is come up with a way to account for that volume. The way I've always done it is through kind of an arbitrary stat stress calculation where instead of thinking too much about, you know, I would I would diff divide things into like lower and upper body stressors, beyond, but beyond that, it was just sort of asking my athletes for difficulty ratings of their sessions mm. and uh, using the, the difficulty ratings of the sessions as measured against their performance over time to get the volume right. Uh, the other stuff is setting expectations and knowing when to, when to like make the call that, hey, we're going to stop emphasizing this quality because of diminishing marginal returns. I think one of the biggest problems, uh, one of the biggest mistakes you make uh, as a CrossFit coach, which I made for years, was trying to get people stronger forever. Your athletes are going to hit a point where uh, the inputs required, the resources required to continue to develop their strength are not worth the trade-off because, you know, the difference between getting your deadlift from 300 to 400 pounds is not the same. That's not the same amount of resources as to go from four to five and from five to 550. Um, and everybody understands that if you point it out to them. But the challenging question is, well, when do you make the trade-off in terms of, we're going to say those next 10 pounds in the deadlift aren't worth it. And I'm just going to have you do more, you know, CrossFit work, more endurance work, whatever you want to call it. On an individual level, it really has to do with the the uh, assessment of the athlete's strength and weaknesses. There's a lot of different ways to do that. The way I have taken to doing it um, with the athletes I, I still work with today, which is, like I said, a, a relatively small portion of my client base now. But uh, I use a method that I learned from a, a guy named Evan Pycon, who was the uh, head sports scientist, I think, for Training Think Tank, which is one of the most successful kind of CrossFit training outfits. Um, and... Evan has a you know model of bioenergetics that differs somewhat from the conventional model in a really useful way, and he basically uses what's called a speed... Well, he uses a bunch of technology that I don't have access to at this time, so he uses also a proxy for that technology called a speed preservation profile, uh, where you sort of assess an athlete's performance uh, in the same modality across a, a time scale ranging from about 3 minutes to about 20 minutes, and you use the outputs from that testing to determine where their bioenergetic training needs to go, that gives you some information about the resistance training. For the resistance training in terms of 
how much do I need to focus on making this athlete stronger? It's kind of a question of how close are they to their genetic potential and also how close are they to the numbers they need in order to be competitive at the level they want to compete at. Like if you want to be a CrossFit Games athlete as a male, probably got to snatch 275 pounds or thereabouts. Not universal. There's probably a few people who don't do that, but you have to be in that range. So it's understanding those objective numbers, understanding where the athletes are relative to their genetic potential, uh, and understanding where the athletes' needs fall on a bioenergetic spectrum. So for a sport like CrossFit, um, there's not necessarily like they have to be this, they don't, they don't all have to be like the same weight. Correct. Right. Um, so for a sport like that, where in other sports like jujitsu, there are weight classes where there are clear advantages, um, for CrossFit, how does somebody know like, okay, when do I need to actually try to grow bigger and when is it no longer useful, especially like the aggregate stress, like you're trying to like pull from everywhere to see, okay, like we've got your stress from running, we've got your stress from lifting, we've got all this other stuff. How do you kind of organize that for them or like help them uh, establish where they need to be in terms of their goal setting? Well, so there's the objective standards, which is basically you analyze competition data and say like, well, look at, so this year that we, the CrossFit Games just happened this past weekend as we speak. And there was a uh, Olympic weightlifting total as one of the events. And so you do the objective work of, of looking at those numbers and saying, what, were the, what was the average? What was the low end? What do you need to lift to be competitive with these people? Depending on what level your athlete's competing at, of course, you compare them to that level. So if your athlete is in the 40 to 44 master's division, you look at those numbers. If your athlete is in the adaptive athlete's division, you look at those numbers, whatever it may be. Uh, you aggregate as much data as you can. There's tons of data now. The CrossFit Games has been going for, I think this is the 16th year. Um, though really, I would say the modern era is like 2010 or 2011 on. So that's a lot of data. So that's the objective side of it. The I wouldn't say necessarily the subjective side, but the individual side really has to do with their response to training. If you run somebody through, you know, two 12-week strength training blocks and like everything goes well, they don't get injured, et cetera, et cetera, and they add like five pounds on each of their major lifts and it came at the cost of them like really putting all their other training, especially their bioenergetics, because CrossFit is an endurance sport. It's an endurance sport with strength, speed, and power components. That's just the reality. If you're gaining relatively little out of that strength development, out of all those resources that you're putting in, and it's taking you away from the other stuff you need to develop, that's kind of when you make the call. There's no objectively correct way to make the call, but it's, a, you know, if, if an athlete is spending, say, 24 to 30 weeks out of the year prioritizing their... Um, their strength development, and they're getting relatively little out of it, and you know for a fact it's coming at the cost of some of their endurance work because there's finite resources uh, that you're working with, that's when it's time to start shifting the emphasis. So how about for jujitsu athletes, when they're training with you, I imagine that they probably leverage a lot of the time in actually developing the skills of jujitsu. When is it important for them to grow stronger? Is it ever important for them to grow stronger? Um, or is it is it just generally like, how do you prepare essentially a jiu-jitsu athlete to be the most competitive? Uh, we're talking about competitive jiu-jitsu athletes? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I don't work with a ton of jiu-jitsu competitors. I do work with a few. So I'll, I'll give you my sort of speculative comments. 
strength is the most important physical attribute for grappling. Um, Jiu-jitsu people have historically had sort of an aversion to that fact uh, because the sort of marketing for jiu-jitsu is that uh, a smaller person can defeat a larger person. And that's true if the larger person doesn't know jiu-jitsu. But weight classes exist for a reason. So I do believe strength is the most important attribute for jiu-jitsu. Uh, the question, though, is how do you balance that with skill development and, and other attributes? First of all, again, just like with CrossFit, diminishing returns are your guide here. Uh, if somebody, you know, if you have a 185-pound male athlete who deadlifts 225 because they've just never trained before and that's like what they can comfortably do the first time they touch a bar, they are going to get huge returns, huge gains off of spending 12 to 18 months doing pretty hard strength training. More than that, realistically, right? But let's say, I don't know, let's say two, two and a half years in, three years in, whatever it may be, you start to hit that wall of, you know, okay, I'm deadlifting 425 now. How much value am I going to get out of the next 10 pounds on my deadlift? How much value am I going to get out of the next 10 pounds on my front squat or whatever, you know, movements you choose to use? So diminishing returns are really your guide. Um, Beyond that, I think that basically the trajectory is as you get stronger and stronger and you get uh, diminishing returns, you start making the training more specific to the sport, which is kind of a weird way to think about it. I don't really think, I don't think making the training specific to the sport should be too much like making what you do in the weight room look like what you do on the mat. It's rather a matter of like... Uh, so you're not wrestling sandbags. I might have you wrestle a sandbag, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't call that strength training necessarily. No, I mean it's it's you know it's it's probably sh just shifting to areas where there are unrealized gains. Going from a bilateral squat as your primary test of leg strength to a unilateral squat, going from a uh, bilateral deadlift to a unilateral deadlift, uh, stuff like that. I also think that one big thing is like lower body strength is really important in grappling, but you're going to hit diminishing returns much sooner because. Uh, you're simply, the demands on your upper body strength relative to your ceiling for upper body strength uh, are much, much higher in grappling. When you squat double body weight, I don't know how much value you're going to get out of getting the 2.25 body weight, right? Like, you're especially because you're competing in a weight class, if you are competing at um, 181 pounds, I think is the division, uh, and you squat 365, you you probably have more than enough reserve strength for basically every scenario. So then we might start saying, okay, well, how can we improve your strength and power endurance instead? Uh, how can we improve your peak power output? Uh, which I think what I'm describing is more or less the trajectory of development for, you know, sports-specific strength and conditioning. It's not just for jiu-jitsu. Um, other factors that are important, obviously endurance is important. Uh, I guess you would call jiu-jitsu an anaerobic endurance sport. I don't really like that terminology, but it's, you know, depending on what division you're in, you're going to compete in rounds of generally five to 10 minutes. And, um, the sort of nature of the sport is to work between. That is how long one round is? One match. Yeah. One match will be five to 10 minutes in most, uh, most competitive environments. There are longer ones. I don't know of anything shorter than five minutes, but there are some where not in a tournament environment, if it's like a, what's called a super fight, which is like a one-off match. Um, they will be like, sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes more. Okay. So occasionally you'll see no time limit matches, but although those kind of seem like the purest form of jiu-jitsu, they're absolutely awful for spectators, so people try to avoid that. Um, but yeah, five to 10 minutes is like your, your average range, depending on age uh, and belt division. But so uh, endurance matters, but it's, you know, the, the 
sort of texture of the sport tends to be periods of relative inactivity, relative inactivity, followed by periods of very intense activity. Um, so a good aerobic base is important. You want to supplement that at some point by training with like substantially higher intensities. And for, for a lot of people, what I've ended up doing is as they get fitter and stronger, their workouts end up starting to look more like what you would call CrossFit workouts. Although the way that I write CrossFit training is not like, it's a little d dissimilar from what you would see if you saw, you know, went to CrossFit.com. It's more targeted than that. Yeah. Um, but that kind of stuff, you know, works, especially not only is it like good training, it's also very efficient when you, at some point, especially when we're in the preparatory phase for a competition or you know, getting close to that, uh, you just don't want your athletes spending two hours in the gym three or four times a week. You want to cut down on that and get them more time on the mats. So what would you say, like, I guess maybe perfect world gen pop who wants to get good at jujitsu, doing some strength training, is doing some conditioning, how would they be spending their time in the gym? Like, what would their schedule kind of be? Like, would they be lifting one day a week, three days a week, four days a week? I mean, there's so much individual variation. Um, but if I were going to say, like, let's say a person 25 years old, their capacity for, for training is relatively high, they're in good, you know, good general shape. I would say something like, or we're assuming jujitsu is the priority here and that the lifting is supplementing it. Yeah, probably like four days a week of jujitsu and two days a week of lifting would be just fine. Probably full body workouts, um, you know, where you have something like one major lower body movement, one, uh, I mean, basically like a leg movement, a push movement, and a pull movement. I think it's really important to train your shoulders directly because they're, they're probably one of the more common sites for injury. Um, I would really, really value training with the largest range of motion that you safely can. I value that in general. Uh, I think that training with large ranges of motion is good for anybody who is not competing with a constrained range of motion. But for jiu-jitsu in particular, develop, I would rather see you use less weight and a larger range of motion because you are going to find yourself in those large ranges of motion on the mat uh, under load. Uh, we know from the research that uh, training with large range of motion does have substantial benefits to flexibility. So if you're uh, training with large range of motion in the weight room, you're going to need to spend less time developing your flexibility independently, which I think is very valuable. Uh, but pretty simple workouts, you know, probably 90 minutes to two hours max. Probably something like, you know, a major lower body exercise, a major push, a major pull, and a few accessories. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. Uh, you want to, like, this is always the advice, but you want to do something you'll keep doing. You want to do something progressive, but especially for general population, it doesn't need to be fancy. You need to get stronger. You need to do it at a rate which you can tolerate with the context of your jiu-jitsu training. Um, and you need to do it in a way that you enjoy. Like, if you, if, so for me personally, I basically do, like, two to three days a week of pretty straightforward hypertrophy training. It's not focused on jiu-jitsu, but it's just because I like it. And just getting stronger, putting on muscle mass, taking your joints and muscles through their full range of motion is going to have you more resilient and, and more effective on the mat. If you want to take your jiu-jitsu, like if you want to improve your performance through your time in the weight room, that's where you would start looking at more like um, something like what I described before with this like long-term trajectory. But the first thing is still getting stronger. Um at that point, you might be looking at adding more weight training sessions. But I think for the average person, three to four days on the mat, probably not all equally hard. And two days in the gym is 
plenty. How about something like cardio? Like, where does that fit in? I remember the first time I went and took a jujitsu class. My friend had invited me. I was really big and just purely weightlifting at the time. I wasn't doing much cardio at all. And I went and I was like, I'm sorry, this guy, I'll like beat him. And we start wrestling and dude, I almost passed out. Like, I can't, <laughs> I can't remember at what point, but I was like, whoa. And I don't know if that was just the general conditioning to jujitsu or if it was my conditioning at a whole. Yeah, it was neither of those things. Okay. Um, and this is an important thing to take away. If you're listening to this podcast and you're new to jujitsu, um, the reason that you get so tired is not because your cardio sucks, it's because your pacing sucks. And that's hard to avoid. A, a really big part of having good cardio, I'm you know doing hand quotes here, uh, for jujitsu is understanding when to rest and when to work. So um, I was training with a, one of my students the other day. It was a, a solid blue belt. He's good. He's athletic. He's strong. And um, I don't know. I tapped him like three times in the round, which is not, I mean, I'm a black belt and he's a blue belt. That's normal. But at the end of the round, my heart rate was like 120 and his was like through the roof. And he was asking me because he knows that I'm a professional trainer about cardio. And basically what I told him was the cardio is not the problem. The pacing is the problem. And that's what you experienced for sure. You're in good shape, right? Like you don't need to have crazy cardio just to go do regular jujitsu training. You just need to be pro like reasonably lean, have a reasonably high work capacity, which you obviously are and do. The problem is, and this is actually can be worse for stronger people because when you're strong, your sort of natural instinct is you make a connection with somebody and you start producing force. So uh, understanding where to rest and where to work is, is such a huge part of that. Uh, as far as training cardio, what I basically tell people is early on, you should just be doing your kind of typical like low intensity steady state cardio. Let your jiu-jitsu training be the hard work and prioritize your strength development. That's where your hard training comes from. As you start to hit those marginal returns in terms of strength training, and again, we're talking here in terms of you're prioritizing jiu-jitsu and you want your off-the-mat training to supplement your jiu-jitsu, not to be its own thing. Um, then that's where maybe you start looking at integrating higher-intensity forms of conditioning. Because especially for those high-intensity moments on the mat, when you're new, what's holding you back is not your cardio, almost certainly. You know, if you're if you're especially out of shape, maybe so. But in that case, you probably just need basic aerobic development anyway, you know? Uh, so once you start running into those diminishing marginal returns with hard strength training, maybe you want to shift a little bit of that focus into doing some some higher intensity uh, endurance training. Uh, but early on, basic strength training, relatively low intensity cardio, increase your total work capacity, right? What you want your cardio to do is number one, make you healthier. Low-intensity cardio is very, very valuable for your health, for sure. Most most important kind of training you can do for your health. Uh, lifting weights is not cardio. Does not have the same physiological effects. Don't be fooled by the internet. Doesn't matter if your heart rate's high. you got to do the, the boring stuff. Um, so health is the first thing. But also increases your total work capacity. So if you, uh, you're, you know, I don't, I, I hate the term active recovery. There's no such thing. But if you improve your aerobic fitness over time, your recovery processes from training improve, right? And as a result of that, you're going to be able to handle more training. And if you can handle more training, both on the mat and off the mat, obviously you're going to make more progress. Long-term, you start running into those diminishing marginal returns of the strength training. That's where you should bring some, consider bringing some higher intensity endurance work in. Yeah, so what you're saying about in terms of like work capacity and like building up 
a higher aerobic, you know, threshold. There, one thing I also feel people don't, it's probably what you meant, um, but a lot of people don't consider is the fact that if I improve the strength of my heart, that it's going to actually drop my resting heart rate. So then everything else relative to that is like less work, right? Like, so I don't, it doesn't take as much to do other things because my resting heart rate is even lower. So us sitting here talking, maybe somebody gets to like an 80 beat per minute, whereas somebody who has better cardio or better aerobic conditioning is going to be sitting around at like 60. And so for all of that time, you now have more like less work that you actually are produced. Your heart has to work essentially. Right. Uh, and beyond that, all of the processes that govern recovery are, uh, are aerobic processes because it happens when you're at rest, right? So uh, when you improve your aerobic fitness, your ability to recover from hard training gets better. I remember uh, reading, uh, I think it was, uh, there's, a, there's a, a really good exercise physiology textbook or sport physiology textbook uh, called uh, Principles and Practices of Resistance Training. I think it's Stone, Stone, and Sands. And one of the points they make in that book is that uh, if you if you look at the research, as you increase aerobic capacity, your ability to, uh, for example, like recover ATP during a session improves. But it's not like this is, again, why I don't like the active recovery thing. It's not this acute thing like, oh, I got on the bike for 30 minutes on my rest day and now I'm more recovered than I was before. Right. Uh, it's that you're improving your the, the systems and processes that are responsible for recovering your body between bouts of hard training. So it's really, really valuable. And the great thing is it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy. You just need to hop on a bike or like whatever cardio machine is comfortable for you. Keep it fairly low intensity. For most people, you're probably going to be working somewhere between like, say, 120 and 140 BPM. There's some individuation that is worth doing there, but that's probably a good range. There's even you can do stuff like talk tests and uh, stuff like that. I would also recommend checking out Evan Pycon's stuff on this. He's on Instagram, posts a lot of really good stuff there. And on Substack, like making sh actually sh making sure that your low intensity training is low intensity is really important. But yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's relatively low cost to do that in terms of your time and effort, and it has huge benefits not just for your performance but for your long term health. So for a lot of the people that come that are interested in jujitsu, are there would you say are are there certain body types that tend to more naturally gravitate towards the sport of jujitsu because like somebody um who's tall and lanky might end up being like oh i played basketball or i play volleyball um some sports have certain athletes that would gravitate towards them or positions or something like that uh is that also true of jujitsu or are you would you see it more as a this is for everyone we're all going to be great at it yeah, I mean, that's actually one of my uh, favorite things about jiu-jitsu is that it, it really, really is accessible to just about any body type. Uh, different body types have different uh, advantages and disadvantages. So, for example, somebody with uh, longer limbs, a longer limb is a longer lever. So uh, it might be physically harder for you to stop, to, to stop somebody from controlling your limbs, which is like jiu-jitsu is essentially a game of first controlling somebody's hips and shoulders to immobilize them and then separating, isolating their limbs from their body to submit them. So if you have longer limbs, maybe it's harder to control those levers. On the other hand, uh, before somebody gets past your limbs to control your hips and shoulders, you can keep them further away, and that's really valuable in and of itself. 
You can also do stuff like, you know, uh, you can reach people's ankles from further away. There's these two uh, really good grapplers brothers, the, the Ruotolo brothers, Ty and Cade, and they're both quite long-limbed for their height. And they can, there's a, a type of takedown called a snatch single leg, where you basically like, as opposed to dropping down low to the mat and picking up somebody's leg, you just sort of like reach for their leg from standing. And they can do it from standing practically upright because their arms are so long, right? So you can make that work to your advantage. As a shorter limbed person, uh, you're going to be like me, I'm 5'6". Uh, you're going to be somewhat limited in like your ability to play games at distance, but I'm, I'm really hard to submit. My limbs are hard to separate from my body. Uh, one big part of jiu-jitsu, or of grappling in general, really, is winning what's called inside position, which you can basically think of as, like, if you and I are grappling, if I can get my arms inside of your arms, if my arms are closer to your to torso than your arms are, I have inside position. That's very powerful. Uh, it's easier for me, as a shorter person, to regain inside position because my limbs are shorter. Uh, and you see this play out at the elite level where there are... Uh, really excellent grapplers in the same weight classes with radically different builds. You know, you'll have people, so for example, one of the greatest of all time, a guy named Marcelo Garcia, I want to say is 5'6", maybe 5'7". He competed at 181 and like super stocky and short and thick. And in that same division, you'll see people who are like 5'11", long-limbed. There are some attributes that I think are valuable. Uh, big feet and hands will generally play to your advantage. Uh, a big head will play to your advantage. Um... But why, why would that? Oh. A big head? Yeah. Your head's a limb, man. So okay. good grapplers like use their head to occupy space, to push people around. Also harder to control. Somebody with a big head and neck is harder to strangle. Uh, big hands, because if you grip somebody with a big hand, basically, uh, if you can close a loop, anytime you can close a loop around something, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a stronger control than an open an open control. So if your hand is big enough that with the average grappler of your weight, if you wrap your hand around their wrist and your thumb covers your middle finger or vice, or you know vice versa, that's a, a difficult to break control. Like I have small little sausage fingers. So if I really want to control somebody, I've got to get two hands on their on their one wrist. Somebody with really big hands has better control that's harder to break. Um, big feet because you use your feet the same way you use hands. So those things all, all come into play. They're just like more powerful, effective controls. Interesting. So, would having smaller joints make a difference? Because, like, like you have small hands, but if I have a small wrist, that's going to make it easier for you to do the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. I mean, you wouldn't want to be, you don't want to be undersized. Yeah. Um, but if you have small joints, obviously, like, if you have smaller joint circumference, you're less likely to be prone to being, like, to building a lot of muscle. So, you might just end up in a smaller weight class. But, yeah, you, you would not want to be undersized. Um which, you know, it's a contact sport, unsurprisingly. It is ultimately, um, like I said early on, strength is, I think, the most important physical attribute. If you have all the technique in the world, but somebody has sufficient technique, well, what technique really is, is like leverage and timing. And if somebody can just overcome your mechanical advantage of leverage by producing way more force than you, that's going to make things more difficult for you, right? You're not going to go to the world championship levels of grappling and find anybody who's especially weak. It's just not going to happen, which, again, is probably the case with every sport, right? But uh, you can, I, I do think you can get by with just about any body type, and that's one of the things that's really interesting about it. You're not going to be a good basketball player if you're 5'2". It's just like Muggsy Bogues notwithstanding. But, like, for the most part, it's not going to happen. Right. You can have just about any build and be an effective grappler. With uh, jiu-jitsu... 
if um, you don't do strength training, could you not grow stronger just doing jujitsu? Well, if you have done no strength training whatsoever and you start grappling, you'll get stronger, uh, but you'll get stronger in very limited ways, right? Like, it's just a really inefficient way to get stronger. You will get stronger. And, of course, if you go from no activity to jiu-jitsu, you're going to get in way better shape. Um, so I think the question is, what are you what are you trying to achieve through doing jiu-jitsu, and, and where does it fit in your life? And, like, if you go from zero exercise to three days of jiu-jitsu a week, boy, you're going to get a lot fitter. Um, you'll develop pretty decent strength over a long time in very particular things, like especially if you train the gi, your grip will get strong. Um, but it's going to take a lot of time. You could you could shortcut it. And you're also going to get health benefits out of resistance training that you're just not going to get out of grappling. Like, being stronger is good for your health. Um, yeah, so you'll get stronger. It's just going to be kind of limited and relatively inefficient. So to get the best results, pair with resistance training and then doing some level of steady-state aerobic conditioning. Yeah, I mean, all of this, of course, uh, contextualized relative to your goals and your available resources. If what you have time for in your busy life is three workouts a week, and the thing you want most is to get better at jiu-jitsu, just do jiu-jitsu three days a week. If you have time, energy, inclination, do two, you know, three or four days of jiu-jitsu and a couple days of lifting, and, and uh, on the end of each of those lifting days, throw on 20 or 30 minutes of cardio, and you're going to be... Very fit if you do that for five years. You're going to be in great shape. Gotcha. So so for the person that maybe has the three days a week, wants to get the most out of those jujitsu days, would it make sense to have one day where they strength trained and then two days where they went to jujitsu or like alternating that? Or or do you need to do a certain amount of jujitsu to even get good at it? Like if I do it one day a week, Oh, man, that's a that's a tough question because there's so much context to it, and it probably changes over time. Is it more important to front load the skills and then maybe back off a little bit? I would say yes. I would say it's probably more important because early on, and it depends a lot on what your gym's training is like too. Like they're like with anything else, there are more and less effective ways to train jujitsu. But assuming like with the way we do it at my gym, I I tell people look, come to two classes a week at least. Because the idea is that you're practicing the same skills each class during the week. We have a foundations program for, for new students. And because you're practicing those skills each day, you're going you're gonna to build those habits and you're going to ingrain those skills. Um, tra- strength training once a week is like, I mean, you can get stronger doing it, yeah. but it's, it's, it's pretty inefficient. So it's just hard to answer the question because there's so much context behind it. But I would say... If what you really care about, you have three days a week to work out, three sessions a week, we'll say you can do. Um, and what you really care about is, I just want to get good at jiu-jitsu, I would just do jiu-jitsu. I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't worry about the strength training in that case. Uh, do, you, uh, do, you, do you watch any boxing or any of that stuff? Uh, I watch a ton of MMA. I'm right. very, very, very closely follow the UFC. I'll watch boxing if it's on, but it's okay. not, like, I don't follow it. Did you, do, did you hear about the Errol Spence? Oh yeah, yeah. Parents Hard to miss that. I mean, uh, right. incredible huge, performance from huge fight. T-Bud, Yeah, right. Uh, I there. I saw this thing where they were saying that Terrence Crawford used to do some wrestling training, and then that's why he was able to like throw Spence around the ring at times because he's like, there's just a different strength that he had versus just training boxing, right? Whereas like Spence is maybe more purely a boxer. 
but had some of this cross-training effect of like being used to kind of grabbing bodies and moving them and stuff like that. I didn't I didn't see the fight. Do you mean like he was throwing him out of clinches? Yeah, yeah. So like, or they'd be in a like they'd be in a spot where he'd like just move him and push him against the rope. Yeah. Or like he'd like spin and like. Yeah, that seems plausible to me. I suspect it has less to do with the strength and more to do with like the sensitivity and timing that comes with you know uh, with doing some grappling and you know one of the really powerful things about grappling like this is why I think self defense is kind of a loaded topic but to the extent that training martial arts is a form of self defense. I think grappling is the most important because it's uh, there's no such thing as a puncher's chance in grappling. You know, once you're once you're locked up with somebody, if you know things and they don't, it's pretty easy to control a person. I mean, I you know, I am a reasonably skilled grappler. I'm not anything special, and like we can have 200 pound athletic guys come in and I can just toy with them. And it's not because again, I'm not especially talented. It's just like I know and they don't. Right. So you get into a clinch situation, even for a moment, if you have the knowledge of something as simple as getting an underhook and cutting an angle, you just toss somebody because it it doesn't really require strength to toss somebody. If you break their balance for a moment, they're just going to fall. But that seems plausible to me that that would have an effect on that. I wish, man, I wish like boxing would be so much more interesting to me if you could throw people in the clinch. (laughs) I I, like boxing. Every time I watch a boxing match, the clinch clinch happens and I'm like. And this is why you watch UFC. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I like every time the crowd, because MMA crowds are terrible, dude. MMA crowds boo grappling, which confuses me so much. Cause when they're, yeah, when it's just like they're they're both trying to kind of figure out what's going to be a good, like there's a whole mental chess match going on. Oh, it's there. so strange to me because the sport of kickboxing exists. So I don't understand why people watch MMA and then boo grappling when they could just watch kickboxing. Right. It's so odd, but... Like, basically, when they start hugging in boxing, I'm like, yeah, the good stuff. And then they break them up, and I, I'm yeah. sad. Yeah. Uh, do you watch, so, like, you know who Bo Nickel is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that guy is, like, kind of insane to watch. Like, I've, I've seen two of his fights now. And, like, the first one, he chokes the guy out, like, right away. And the second one, he knocks the guy out right away. Um, For for a guy like that, like, it seems like he, because, like, I don't think jiu-jitsu is known specifically for takedowns like so somebody with really good takedowns probably used to wrestle and then moved to jiu-jitsu right on average yeah so uh, first of all on Bo Nickel it's an interesting case I do think he's really good but we also don't really know because he hasn't fought anybody good yet right. I mean like the last guy he fought was like on three days notice a replacement yeah no that's not a drag on Bo Nickel he's obviously very good I think he's gonna be an excellent fighter we just don't know where he stands yet but yes, uh, jiu-jitsu historically, and you see this now with like a lot of people who come over from jiu-jitsu and they just can't take people down. Uh, jiu-jitsu is known for, like kind of the definitive feature of jiu-jitsu as a martial art is what's called the guard, is fighting off your back. It's really, really powerful, um, but especially in a situation with strikes, being on top is winning. So that's why you see so many wrestlers having so much success in MMA, right? Bo Nickel, obviously about as well pedigreed a wrestler as you can be. Uh, you know, you, you and you've had all kinds of champions coming out of I mean, Daniel Cormier was uh, was obviously an elite wrestler, Henry Cejudo, gold Olympic gold medalist. So Alderman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if he was like elite elite, but he was a wrestler. I think, um I think he's D three or something. Something like that. But still yeah, good wrestler. Um he has great jujitsu too. He's he's got a really interesting style of grappling. You got that, Brock Lesnar too. Yeah, you do, you do have <laughs> you do have Brock Lesnar. Uh 
but yeah, so rest, especially like if you want, if the game plan that you have is to get the fight to the ground, you need to have good wrestling. We look at people like Khabib too, Khabib Nurmagomedov and all the guys coming out of Dagestan. Dagestan produces the best wrestlers on the planet. That is the best wrestling region on planet Earth. It's not a coincidence that you get people coming out of there who are just really damn good at putting you on your back. Right. So for somebody who's interested in jujitsu for self-defense, um, you know, is is just prioritizing the skill of jujitsu the best thing for them to do? This is a really difficult topic. Um, self-defense. So people talk about self-defense and what they mean is one person and another person fighting. fighting. Yeah. And so what I always say is there's Self-defense in this big, broad sense of like, which is, I think, the better way to talk about it. Assuming I won't get stabbed. Well, so, assuming you won't get stabbed. Self-defense is a big, broad thing. And if you want to, if you're serious, if what you care about is staying safe, which for me, it's like, I don't know, statistically, the world's pretty safe. That's just the reality. Obviously, that's demographic dependent. But um, if that's what you care about, yes, you should learn some martial arts. You should also seriously consider purchasing and training with and carrying a firearm. You should tr practice situational awareness. You should learn de-escalation tactics, right? It's this really big, broad thing. Right. When it comes to the thing that people talk about as self-defense when they come to jiu-jitsu school, there's no such thing as self-defense. There's just fighting. So what you should do is you should learn how to fight. Then the question is, is jiu-jitsu the best way to do that? Um, it's pretty good. Uh, I do think it's one of the best ways. Uh, Considering that you don't necessarily need a size advantage to win. Yeah, and I mean, in reality, that's true of everything, right? Like, if you have two people who are going to throw hands and one of them knows how to box, yeah, um, it's it's not as big of an advantage because, like, if you weigh 140 and your interlocutor weighs 220, it's going to be hard to put them down with a punch. But um, wrestling, I think, would be nearly as good as, as jiu-jitsu. The big advantage of jiu-jitsu in that regard is the uh, that you specifically train the ability to fight out of the worst-case scenario, which is on your back with a person on top of you, right? Like, you put even a good wrestler on their back and they're lost because the sport of wrestling doesn't incentive. Like, once you go to your back, you lose. Yeah. Whereas in jiu-jitsu, fighting off your back is kind of the core element. So I do think that's really uh, a huge advantage. I think that if you're going to train it, you should, and if your major concern is self-defense, you need to include strikes in your training because, uh, and not just striking on the feet, but specifically striking on the ground because strikes radically narrow the uh, range of options that are safe for you. And we uh, at Framework, we employ like an objective driven approach to jiu-jitsu. That is, we couch all the training in terms of what your objectives are in any given situation. And when strikes are involved, your objectives change. You guys teach strikes too. We include strikes in our foundations program. And at some point, I wouldn't say like we don't have like a boxing class. We don't right, teach right. you like how to. Right. The it's way I would stand up. Right. And we do some stuff from standing. But the way I would say is that it's jujitsu with strikes. It's about how to deal with strikes rather than how to throw them. Right. We'll do a little bit of like using them to set up entries and stuff. But on the ground, your objectives change when strikes are involved. And uh, if what you care about is self-defense, the vast majority of your training should include strikes. With that said, I think the biggest advantage of training jiu-jitsu from a self-defense perspective is that you will regularly go through, even if you're only training like what we call sport jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu without strikes, jiu-jitsu for the sake of the game, you pretty much every time you're on the mat will have somebody trying to physically impose their will on you. And a really big part of being able to defend yourself 
is not freezing up when somebody is trying to force something on you. Uh, so that's a really, really big advantage of, of just the training itself that like you will be used to people trying to impose their will on you and, and be able to deal with that and be able to have, uh, I won't say keep your wits about you, but, but you will, you will remain in yourself and not just freeze up in that moment or at least be more likely to do so. I think that's the base level biggest advantage beyond that. Yes. Jiu-Jitsu is a great way to train for self-defense specifically because grappling is more effective, I think, than striking for self-defense uh, because of the aforementioned, like, the knowledge problem. There's no puncher's chance in grappling. And because of the ability to fight out of really bad spots, like being on your back on the ground with somebody either on top of you or standing over you. You want to be able to take care of yourself out of the worst-case scenarios. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, like, the... Uh, so, like, I think most people imagine themselves, like, becoming this lethal weapon. Like, I'm going to be able to, like punch and then like if i get a weapon in my hand i'll be able to like do whatever with that and then i can also wrestle like that's what they i think that that's what they want and they think as long as i can do all that that's going to do a better job at keeping me safe versus like some of the skills that you mentioned like de-escalation um learning how to have like use and carry a firearm like those sorts of things i don't think are thrown into the the four of what would actually keep you, what is most likely to keep you safe versus like what people like, okay, I just yeah. need to learn how to punch this guy. Yeah, what's most likely to keep you safe is being judicious in where you hang out and who you hang out with, right? right. Like, uh, not to downplay, like obviously there the possibility of being assaulted randomly in public or mugged or whatever does exist. Statistically, it's not that likely and that doesn't mean you shouldn't prepare for it. It just means like really think about if you if you hang out at bars at 2 a.m., you are more likely to get into an altercation than if you don't. Uh, that's not saying don't do it. It's just saying, like, understand that the risk is there. And I, I really do think from a self-defense perspective, um, de-escalation is really important. I think that's especially if you if, if the kind of situation you think, you know, if somebody's looking for self-defense and they don't have a context in which that makes sense. If they're just kind of like abstractly looking for self-defense, it's hard for me to even make a suggestion. But if you're saying like, you know, I go out on the weekends with my friends and I see fights happen a lot and like I like going out with my friends and I just want to feel more confident, then yes, probably learn some hand-to-hand combat skills, but also like learn de-escalation tactics. So, so I th- yeah, so I think there's a difference between like the like some males who are looking to pursue it just for the pursuit of what would be you know, feeling more masculine and confident in that situation because they're like, well, since I have these skills and if this thing happens, I'm going to I'm gonna mess this guy up versus like somebody who probably actually doesn't want anything to happen. So like I imagine like smaller female mm-hmm. who like just wants to go live their life, have a good time, and then like thing happens and it's like train for jujitsu. Like what, what do you, for that person, it's like, yeah, obviously like they don't, want to be in a situation where something like that happens they might be walking home late from work or whatever sure. whatever well for that person is jujitsu the move is it walking around with pepper spray not now you're a self-defense expert <laughs> sure 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 yeah i mean it's probably like if you're gonna train a martial art i do think jujitsu makes sense in that context again because of the ability to fight off your back and i think one thing that's really important to understand is that point of self-defense is not to win an altercation it is to survive an altercation right so in this the situation being like can a smaller person have enough technique not to like 
end up in top position and, and get to an arm bar and break your arm, but just to make enough space from the bottom to extricate themselves and run the hell away. Um, and I do think that because of the emphasis on those bad positions, jiu-jitsu is, is a good answer to that. But I also, I, I always want to point out with, with the topic of women's self-defense in particular, the context for uh, most women's experiences like this has nothing to do with like a stranger violently assaulting them. Most of most sexual assaults and rapes and things like that happen with people who women know. Uh, they are emotional as much as they're physical. It's manipulative as much as it is like physically coercive. And I think it's really important to um, emphasize that because I there's a sense in which when we when we talk about like that's not to say that it's not worthwhile for women to train self-defense in case of these scenarios because sadly these scenarios are still uh, all too common. But let's not distract ourselves from the fact that when those things happen, it's not. I'm I'm speculating a little. I'm not like super familiar with the data here as I understand it. When things like that happen, sexual assault, rape, etc., it's not generally like a stranger in a dark alley. Uh, it is somebody that the person knows, that the victim knows. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, it's emotionally manipulative as much as it is physically coercive. And, right. and uh, you know, jujitsu training is not going to help with that. We have we have cultural challenges that we need to solve that uh, I love jujitsu, but it's not the it's not the right tool for that job. Exactly. And it's like a lot of the times it's the headlines that lead people to believe that this is going to be the solution to their problem, which is like you're not hearing about oh, this situation where they were manipulated or what, like, that's not what... Right. That's not what writes what the big headlines, right? So that's why the guys want to learn how to defend themselves. And maybe it's like they're like, oh, you know, that one time I was at a bar and the guy just kind of felt like he punked me and if I would have just had the confidence to punch him in the face or something like that, yeah, right? <laughs> where is that? that? Like, if you here's what would probably happen is you learn that self-defense and you're like, you know, you're capable of that. And the guy still does the thing, but you're probably not going to punch him in the face because you don't need to. You know, I, um, there's a, a very well-known jujitsu coach named John Danaher. And, uh, I think he, he said something once that really hit the nail on the head kind of about this topic, which is that jujitsu will not make you a better person. Jujitsu will make you more of who you are. So if you are an aggressive asshole and you get really good at jiu-jitsu, you, you might just be more of an aggressive asshole. Uh, if you are a calm, generally, like, if you're a normal person, basically, then, like, jiu-jitsu will probably emphasize that. You'll be more relaxed, you'll be more calm, you'll be less likely to get into an altercation. But, you know, I love jiu-jitsu and I really do think it, like, like any kind of, um, any kind of outlet for self-actualization can make your life way better. I also think there's definitely a tendency in some of the jiu-jitsu community to, like, hold it up on a pedestal. Number one, the things that jiu-jitsu does for you that make your life better, other activities can also do for you. If you find something you're really passionate about, you find something that, you know, like, I think of it as the art of craft. If you find something that you can dedicate your time to, like, getting better at, the process of getting better at that thing will just aid your life in a bunch of different ways. And jiu-jitsu is a thing that is particularly fun so I think a lot of people get into it but like weight training can do that for yeah. you playing the guitar can right. do that for you the other thing is just that like jiu-jitsu is um, 
you will, like with anything else, the way that jiu-jitsu affects you will be influenced by the way that you learn jiu-jitsu and the people that you do jiu-jitsu with and stuff like that, right? So for me, a huge emphasis at our gym is, is just the culture. Is like, I want jiu-jitsu to... I don't even want to say make better people. I'm not a moral instructor. That's not my job. Yeah. I want to provide an environment where people feel safe and included and welcomed right. and can do this really fun thing. And as a result, I think that makes their lives better. But, right. you know, we ought and not it, put it on too much of a pedestal. I mean, it is probably a better environment for learning versus like breeding a bunch of competitive douchebags too. Cause like, it's like, look, training with those people, maybe it's like they'll try harder and maybe in, in certain situations you want to know what that feels like, right? But that's different than like I go in and every time I risk an injury because that's more likely to keep me out and less likely to keep getting better. Um, and on top of that, just the the fact that I know I'm with other students that are also going to help facilitate my learning is going to create a better environment for my understanding just from like if I'm having to process threat, that's not the same environment in which you're going to learn, right? Like for me to learn, it needs to be a safe environment where there is this kind of mutual understanding that we're all working to end up better. Yeah, that's that's 100% right. So, I mean, a few things there. One is that jujitsu is impossible to do without other people, right? Uh, it's, it's the nature of the thing. So we always try to instill, like, one of the purposes of the Foundations program is to develop good training partners. The Foundations program is like our beginner's curriculum. Uh, it's to develop good training partners, to be, and that means a bunch of different things, but part of it is just, like, understanding that you are there in part to help your partners get better at jiu-jitsu. I'm always very careful. Like, I deliberately, I don't use the word opponent. I use the word partner. We're talking about competition, sure, but like we're not a competition-oriented gym. I use the word partner, and that's a deliberate choice. Um, the other thing is that the the great enemy to your progress is injury, so we need to train in a way that mitigates injury. Jiu-jitsu is pretty safe, all in all, but it is a contact sport, and if you do dumb things, dumb things will result. So we try to provide a training environment that's safe in a variety of ways. And lastly, one thing that's really important for me, you know, when my business partner and I were, were building the business and kind of like setting out our vision, I, to contextualize, we took over an existing business. So like my coach, Drew, used to live here. Relatively re recently, he moved to the East Coast and he asked, uh, asked me to step in and, and take over the business because he didn't want the community to just kind of die out. So when I sat down with my business partner to be, and we kind of talked about what we wanted. One of the main things I said, which this was already the case at Framework, but we wanted to make sure it stayed the case and became more the case, was, you know, there. we want Framework to be a place where people who wouldn't necessarily thrive in other jiu-jitsu gyms will thrive. And that's just the reality of, like with anything else, right? If you have a powerlifting gym where the culture's a certain way, not everybody is going to thrive in that powerlifting gym. Well, and that's okay. It doesn't, not every gym has to be for everybody. But we want to be a place where it, whether you would thrive in a regular jiu-jitsu gym, your average jiu-jitsu gym, whatever you want to call it or not, you'll thrive with us. And that's down to the culture. That's down to how included everybody feels, what the values set by the leadership are. And that's really, really important to us. And I think as a result, it also facilitates a better learning environment because people aren't uh, anxious to be there. People are are happy to be there because they feel like their partners are there to help them. Even even when you're in contest with somebody, even when you're trying to quote unquote beat each other, ultimately you know you're trying to make each other better.
That's awesome. Jake, this has been great, dude. Um, where is, if somebody wanted to learn more about you and hear more from you, where are the best places for them to check you out? Uh, well, you can check out frameworkseattle.com. That's the, the website for our uh, jiu-jitsu school. Uh, if you want to contact me, you can check out my personal website, which is anarchostrainingmethods.com. At some point in the relatively near future, it'll probably be jacobsipkin.com, but that won't, uh, anarchos will be up until uh, until that one is. So one of those two in the, in the future will be the spot to find me. Perfect. Uh, thank you guys for listening. If you liked it, be sure to like it. Leave us a review on the episode and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks again.